Now on News Talk as part of our autumn season of documentary on News Talk, producer Susan Dennehy and writer Joanna Marsden bring to light the personal memoirs of Donegal man Jack Kerrigan, a member of Ireland's first Paralympic team in The Boy from the Northwest. In Drumahare, County Leitrim, in the northwest of Ireland, the River Camogue runs through the small holding of Rosemary Kerrigan. You can hear the river. It's the river down there. Do you see just where that sign is? Just before it, there's a gate. I don't know if you can just see sort of a gate going through there. And where that tree is, sort of just past it, would have been a bridge which the railway would have come across and actually the little the stone cottage that you would have seen would have been a gatehouse there. And, you know, on a nice day, it is really beautiful here. Rosemary settled here in 1979 with her husband, Jack Kerrigan. Paralysed as a young man, Jack was one of the first wheelchair users to be visible in Irish society and a member of Ireland's first Paralympic team. Jack, you know, used to push... Well, downhill he wouldn't have to push so much. He'd go down to the bridge down there. And then I'll show you this. From here you'll be able to see. You, can, you, you get a very good view of the river. And in the summertime the river is often very low. And Jack used to go down and go in that gap and sit and watch the bird life. And I remember him telling me how he sat there for half an hour one day watching a stoat gathering stuff up for a nest or something. He was absolutely fascinated. And again, it's a fairly stiff push-up up the hill, to back up, come up, a way of keep trying to keep fit. It was here, in Drummer Hare, looking through his kitchen window at the mountain known as Benbow, that Jack typed his memoirs. He had grown up in the nearby seaside town of Bundorn, but his story begins in Scotland, where he was working as a carpenter on a hydroelectric scheme. The year was 1949. The month was June. I was 21. After work one hot day, Jack decides to dive into a local river. As he hits the water, the power of the current changes the course of his life. I was carried to the Bridge of Erne Hospital, unconscious, following a high dive from the bridge in the nearby village of Pitlochry. My first reaction was puzzlement. What happened? What exactly is wrong? Why am I lying like this? I try to turn over, but nothing happens. I try again. It seems I cannot get my legs into gear. A dreadful thought occurs. Perhaps they're not there. Gingerly, I put a hand down under the bedclothes, and I find that I have legs, all right. My hands can feel my legs, but my legs don't feel my hands. In my waking moments, I'm terribly uncomfortable. I find it hard to breathe. I ask a nurse for another of those pain-killing injections which seem to induce delicious unconsciousness and beautiful dreams. Um, now, his parents were notified and his father came over and his father was standing there and they kept on saying to him, well, he's going to die, you know, he will die. And Jack was lying there and he's told me, I was saying to myself, I 
blasted well I'm not going to I'm bloody well not going to die and he was struggling with every single breath but he couldn't speak um, and his father was so convinced by what they were saying that he'd be dead within about 24 48 hours he went to find a local undertaker went in to the man's workshop I suppose and said I want to order I'd like to order a, a coffin and the undertaker said to him right what size so he said well I think he's about six foot six foot one or two I'm really not sure and the man looked at him and said is this man dead yet and the father said no and the undertaker looked at him and said go away and only come back to me when he is dead and that was the first bit of encouragement that man got and he often used to talk about it later that it was the undertaker who actually gave him hope Inside Rosemary's cottage, she's making tea for her son Jonathan and his children, Callum and Isabel, who have come to visit and look at Jack's old photo album. Well, by the way, it's Benbo. While the sun, it, a few little while ago, you wouldn't have been able to see it at all. And when we first came here, the trees were not nearly up as far as that, so it was far more impacting on us, you know. But but if you'd been here a few hours ago, you wouldn't have seen it at all. So that's Benbo. Yes, my name is Paddy Kerrigan. I'm a brother of Jack, uh, two years younger than Jack and four years younger than our sister. I'm now 85 and I live in a place called Old Adaminaby on Lake Eucombe. Uh I came to Australia in 1953 and have been here ever since. Uh, now, my mother ran a boarding house when we were kids growing up. She used to keep about 30 or 40 people during the summer months. And Dad had a fairly uh, good job with the railway. He was with the railway from when he was 13 years of age. Uh, now, Bundorn had a very big beach. All along the beach, you had bathing boxes in those days. There were little boxes on wheels. Rogie Rock, where uh, all the young lads used to dive from, uh, that was over... Uh, Oh, on the right-hand side of the beach, as you look out, out to sea, Jack, he and I used to do a lot of uh, diving uh, from up the top of that, somersaults and swallows and uh, jackknives and all the rest. Now, that's taking off from Rogie, OK? This is part yeah. of Rogie. Somebody has managed to take a photograph from underneath, up at him, and he's like he's flying like a swallow. Then it's going down. Oh, there's that one again. Do you see it? There's Rogie. And they're curling up to go into it, into the water. Uh, Jack was a bit of a ladies' man. As I say, he was... uh, uh, He looked, you know, about 25 when he was only 14. And uh, he had no problems at the balls and the dances escorting the the best-looking girl there home. Uh, we had a problem in that you'd take some girl out and you told her you were an engineer or some rubbish like that. And then the next day you might be walking up the street. I was serving my apprenticeship, as Jack did too, as a carpenter and joiner. And you'd be walking up the street carrying a bag of cement on sh- one shoulder and a lather on the other. And you'd see this girl that you'd been, well, you know, blindsiding at the, at the ball the night before, telling her you were all sorts of a a professional person you come up 
So you'd pull your cap down over your eyes and put the bag of cement on her side and try and get past. Is it conceivable that medicine with all its wonder drugs, its new techniques of transplant surgery, has no cure for this? Is this a sort of dump for incurables? Maybe they have an incinerator around the back for the hopeless cases. The staff here are nice enough people, but they want to teach me how to manage without the use of my legs. They don't seem to realise that I'm here to be cured and to get back to normality. If I can't be cured, then it's goodbye to job. Girlfriend, hobbies, social life, everything worth doing, and back to my mother in a pram. Now, I remember when the news first came and Dad went over and sent back the news. There was no hope, apparently, at that time. They thought Jack would only last a short time. And uh, Dad came home, and then the nuns, we lived right beside the convent, they came to the house anyway and said, right, oh, well, we'll all kneel down now and we'll say prayers for the repose of Jack's soul so that he goes to heaven and blah, blah, blah. Well, Dad jumped up and said, look, for God's sake, you know, get out of the house altogether, go back down to the convent, say your prayers down there. We're praying that he's going to survive. Well, he was hurt when he was 21. He was in hospital for 14 months, and I suppose he was only 22 or so when he came home. And in those days, there were no wheelchairs lying about, so it was a matter of carrying him from the hospital out into the waiting car, then take him home and then carry him into our home. I had already set up a bed and hooks in the ceiling and all the rest so my mother could get him in and out of bed. And first thing he said, when Mam and Dad go off to the church this evening, he said, you and I are going to do something. I said, fair enough. And uh, he said, right. He said, I've been thinking, I don't think I'm paralyzed. He said, I think, you know, my legs move and, you know, I can see them jumping at times. I think we should do something about this. He said, if you get a piece of steel out the back and some wires and we'll hook me up to the 240 volt power. So I said, okay. So I went off and got the wires and plugged them into the, through the PowerPoint and hooked Jack up with a bar in his hand holding on to that and uh, his feet on this piece of railway line with the other wire hooked onto that. So Jack gave me the, you know, when I say go, switch her on. So I switched her on. Well, Jack jumped all over the place. His feet went over and back on this rail. And he was trembling, shaking with this 240 volt going through him. So every now and then he'd say, stop, you know. I say, can you walk yet? <laughs> no, he said, no, bl no bloody fear. He's another go. He said, I'll give him. So we kept at this for quite a while anyway, but... It didn't, uh, it didn't work, so he was quite convinced then, I think only then, uh, that he was paralysed and <laughs> that we couldn't fix it anyway. But uh, some of the things you do, you know, for to, uh, uh, for to help somebody that's really, I suppose, at their wit's end. 
Had I been in a position to dictate, I think I would have shied away from people and spent my time reading and listening to the radio, only admitting a few very special friends. The fact that I was incontinent overwhelmed me with embarrassment, and uh, I was too ashamed to associate with polite society. I was also a sitting duck for the religious zealots, which was heavy going for me. I often quarrelled with my family about their show-em-to-everybody attitude, but they pressed on with my social rehabilitation. And in no time, my bedroom had become a gambling casino, with poker predominating and tea and buns about ten o'clock every night. Yeah, well, I think it was uh, possibly Christmas time, and I was uh, working in Dublin at the time, and I bought a wheelchair for Jack, uh, I think it cost me 17 pounds. So uh, brought that back down with me the next time I went home. My wheelchair was one of those with a sliding footboard and the big solid propelling wheels in front. It was only partially collapsible, but was extremely strong. To be able to move around the house and to eat a meal at the table was a joy. And Paddy, his brother, bought him that chair. When he came home, he had no wheelchair. Is, is Paddy the one that's in Australia? Yeah. But it's this old-fashioned wheelchair. You know, they have the wooden, the wooden handles and little wheels at the back. Now, there's a photograph further mm -hmm. on of Paddy pushing him. This is all in Bundoran. Yeah. I come to terms with the varying public attitudes I encounter as I'm out and about in Bundoran. I learn not to be offended by people who are so embarrassed by my changed circumstances that they cross the road rather than speak to me. I learn to graciously accept the effusive condolences of those who wish to sympathise with me. I am grateful for the many friends who treat me exactly as before. The first dance I ever attended in a wheelchair was entirely against my own will. I had been very fond of ballroom dancing, and I thought it would be sad for me and embarrassing for the girls I used to dance with if I were to appear like a skeleton at a feast. So ran my argument. But my friend, Mickey McAleer, had made up his mind I was going. He tilted my chair up onto its caster so that I couldn't hold it. Mickey's argument was that if I was going to die young, I might as well see what I was missing. I enjoyed that night immensely. I met so many people I hadn't seen in a long while, and the warmth of their greetings made it obvious that my worries about the dance had been unfounded. To cap it all, the proprietor of the dance hall took us aside afterwards and he said that he had been amazed that the girl in the box office had taken our money. From then on, he said, neither myself nor my companion should ever pay going into his ballroom. I had to listen to Mickey crowing all the way home, and from then on, I was as often in the ballroom to suit my impecunious friend as I was to suit my own romantic adventures. would have been 
very, very popular and very well liked. And, and for instance, uh, people like Ruby Murray, who um, in her very early days and when she was just becoming very, very well known, she would be down in Bundoran. Belfast singer Ruby Murray often performed in the ballrooms of Bundoran during the summer seasons of the early 50s. She would soon go on to international stardom. I don't know how those two came to, to know one another. And she would be considerably younger than him. And she was really very, very, very fond of him, terribly fond of him. In fact, I only learnt in the last year or so that uh, she would be pushing him in his chair. And um, many years later, a letter came from Ruby to him, which in some ways was, was quite sad because obviously life hadn't gone quite the way she had hoped it would. And in a way, I think she was trying to sort of see what he was doing then and was he married or not. And it wasn't said in so many words, but you could get that undertone. And he was really very sad about that. I was at home for five years or so when we extended our house. We had a new bedroom built onto the back and my old room at the front of the house was converted into a sweet shop. It had a hatch that opened onto the street. I could now provide myself with pocket money for my existence was continuing longer than expected. Indeed, my overdue demise became something of a family joke. Thanks to the diligent care of his mother and the local Jubilee nurse, Jack's health improved but his heavy old-fashioned wheelchair was difficult to manoeuvre and he was dependent on others to leave the house. One summer day, a group of my friends decided to take me up Rogie Rock where we had spent so many happy days swimming and diving before my accident. They knotted their towels together to form a rope which they attached to my wheelchair and a bit like huskies with a sleigh, they pulled me across the strand and up the cliff path to Rogie. Despite occasional outings to old haunts like Rogie Rock, Jack still spent long periods of time in bed and he struggled to envisage a future. Then one day in July 1959, a young priest in a wheelchair called in to see me. Our first few words established that he had suffered almost the same injury and consequences as myself and yet he had mastered it far better than I had. His name was Leo Close. My name is Bernie Grant and I was Bernie Close. And I had two brothers, um, Lone and Brendan. Lone is Leo. Uh, we called him Lone, which was the Irish for Leo. We were very close, Lone and I. We really were. Just prior to his visit to Jack, Bernie's brother Leo made history when he became the first wheelchair user in the world to be ordained a Catholic priest. He had found a way around the archaic Vatican rule that insisted priests must stand to say Mass. He was able to stand on a kind of a platform that he had a big belt around his waist and that used to hook on to each side of the platform and these poles were sticking up. Then he had calipers on his legs and they straightened the legs, you see, and then he'd, he'd pull himself up. Now, Lone first met Jack. Some friend must have asked him to go to see him. Jack was at home and his mother was looking after him. Lone felt that he was kind of hidden in, in a bedroom. 
And at that stage, that was always kind of the impression you got of a person that was disabled. They were kept in the in the background. Leo told me more about spinal injury and how to live with it in that first meeting than I had ever heard before. He gave me a demonstration on how to dress myself, how to drive, and advice on a suitable wheelchair. Leo had been rehabilitated in Stoke Mandeville Hospital in England, and we both agreed that I must get there quickly. He spent three days in Bundorn, and each day we talked and planned my strategy. Leo's visit made me realise that a choice had to be made. Either I was content to be the family invalid, given regular meals, weekly trips to the pub, molly-coddled and shielded from cold and work, or I took responsibility for myself and led a normal life within the confines of a wheelchair. In February 1960, inspired by Leo, Jack made the journey from Bundoran to Stoke Mandeville Hospital in England. At the time, a young Irish nurse was there, training in the new science of rehabilitation. My name is Breed Murphy, that's B-R-E-D-E. <laughs> and I was 21, just finished my training, general training. This was a very big uh, facility. There were Nissan huts and there were big wards of 20 patients or maybe 24. It was the best place you could go if you had a spinal injury. The very best because um, Gutman, uh, Ludwig Gutman was heading it up. He was the, uh, a German neurosurgeon, and he was absolutely first class. Before Dr Gutman arrived in Stoke Mandeville, young men came in, and because they didn't know how to treat them, they died. They died from lack of knowledge. They weren't turned, and they weren't rehabilitated properly. Now, he changed all that. And to think, wasn't it ironic to think, this German came over to make history in England, make, make history, world history, for the treatment of spinal injuries. Ludwig Gutmann was a Jewish émigré who had fled Nazi Germany in 1939. In the years before the war, Gutmann had seen the Jewish community use sport to raise morale, and he was now using it to build strength and self-esteem in spinal injury patients. I was admitted to Stoke Mandeville Hospital in February 1960. After a week of intensive tests and investigations, the great Ludwig Gutmann and his entire retinue arrived at my bedside. This little man gave me the greatest shock of my life by telling me he could not rehabilitate me. After that had sunk in, he told me, I could rehabilitate myself. I remember Dr Gutman saying, if you work, we will work with you. But if you don't work, we will send you home. Oh, Jack liked that. I'm telling you, Jack worked. And worked outside the gym as he worked. I saw him struggling, as I say, to get out of the chair and get back in. To think of the effort that was... And he did that. I'd be doing medicines or going around and Jack would be down on the floor struggling to get back up into the chair. And the trick was you put on your brakes, you slid down on the footplates, you got down on the floor and then you took a breath and you slid back and you pulled yourself up by the strength of your arms up into the seat of the chair. 
and what that meant to him. I spent six of the happiest months of my life in Stoke Mandeville. The physiotherapy mostly consisted of sport, and I tried swimming, archery, basketball, field events. I also learned wood turning in the occupational therapy workshop. Working with wood again gave me considerable satisfaction and made me feel useful. I had my whole concept of paraplegia rearranged, and by the time I was discharged in August, I had been completely re-educated. Jack is a very good example of somebody who had not basically done any sporting things until he went to Stoke Mandeville. And they had questioned him as to what he had done before he got hurt. And one day the then gymnast came to him and said, you used to do swimming, didn't you? And Jack said, yes. He said, right, well, you're going to do it again. And Jack said, sorry. Any rate, they, he must have been put in his wheelchair and he was taken down to the swimming pool and he was tipped in. And he said, to his amazement, he didn't sink. He actually floated and started to manage to move his arms around and realised, oh, God, I could do it. My parents had moved house when I was away at Stoke Mandeville. My father, being a driver on the Great Northern Railway, was transferred to Drogheda when the branch line in Bundoran closed down. And now I found myself in a new location, my parents had also bought a car to which hand controls were fitted and I was soon motoring. This opened new vistas and gave me untold freedom and independence. Looking back, I can now appreciate my parents' incredible generosity. They were opening the door after years of caring for me. I'm Oliver Murphy. I'm from Drogheda. Uh, I, I live here, and that but just about 400 yards over the road is where I grew up in Number 8 by O'Reilly Terrace. In 1959, Oliver Murphy was paralysed in an accident at the sugar beet factory where he worked. Like Jack, he had travelled to Stoke Mandeville to be rehabilitated. And, that, and that's where I met Jack first, and that's where we became great friends and, and remained great friends. Back in Ireland, Jack, Oliver and Leo began to play sport together. In the summer of 1960, Leo was asked to captain an Irish team for the first international Paralympic Games, the brainchild of Ludwig Gutmann. Besides, I want to thank in a special way Dr Gutmann, who has agreed that the Stoke Mandeville Games shall be held in Rome after the Olympic Games on the same sports grounds of the 17th Olympiad. Leo, Jack and Oliver, together with two other wheelchair users, Joan Horn and Jimmy Levins, prepared to leave Dublin for this historic event. You're listening to The Boy from the Northwest on News Talk 106 to 108. In September 1960, the Irish team prepared to leave for the first Paralympic Games in Rome. Jack Kerrigan and his two good friends, Leo Close and Oliver Murphy, were on the team. It was for us, so it was mighty. And then we were all put on board, I think we were carried on individually onto the plane. And, and all these wheelchairs were going, they, they, had, um, uh, they had somebody with each one. 
They had uniforms and everything. They were all dressed for the games. The Irish team was one of 23 international teams making their way to Rome, where the Italian hosts were preparing for this unprecedented gathering of wheelchair users. The army played a big part in helping at, at those games. Coming into the Olympic village, and we were sitting on the bus looking at this accommodation, which was up on stilts. There was no ground floor. And we said, my God, and there was no lift. How are we going to manage here? So what they did was to put plywood on these steps. And there was no way you could manage, you could manage them yourself. But there was army personnel on duty the whole time, and they pushed you up. So it wasn't what they call accessible in any way. Despite the inaccessibility of the venue, it was a revelation to compete as equals with so many other disabled athletes. Lone himself was in um, table tennis and javelin and discus and the shot put, I think. Whereas Jack would be in the swimming and all that and Oliver and archery, of course, was a great um, sport. I think the fun was part of it. Apparently they were, they were supplied with a lunch pack every day, wherever they went to the field events, OK? But the lunch pack, being Italy, always included vino. But Oliver didn't drink, and quite a few of them said they wouldn't drink. So Jack said, well, I can drink. I'll drink. I won't do any harm to me. But it's one day anyway, Jack was there, and he was going to do what they call dartery in the afternoon. No, he's playing darts with the bow and arrow. So... But our number was didn't drink the beer on Jackson. So I drank it's just only harmless stuff. But it wasn't so harmless at all. <laughs> so I just I could still see him there. And one of these fellas going around, Italians, with a little tray in front of him, and the little cups of black coffee, strong coffee. Don't know how many he drank, steady himself up. <laughs> And I remember I found um, a telegram there lately, sent to my, my parents from Lone saying, uh, one, two goals, just lovely, just signed Lone. You know, the old telegrams, they were just lovely. The two goals had been won by Joan Horn in archery and swimming. Jack had tied for third place in the men's breaststroke. But what the team had gained was more than medals. We were the centre of attraction. We were the centre. We were, absolutely. The people in the wheelchairs was about 500 there from the five continents. The first time this ever happened in the world ever before. And we were the centre. So we really were elevated. We were elevated. And I've always said, I've said this so often, that when I came back from Rome, I was away up here. And I never came down. I never came down. It's a great feeling of achievement and, and, and confidence, confidence going into you, you know. What the hell, you're on a wage show, that doesn't really matter. Forget about the things you can't do. There's so many things that you can do that you really can do. But it was after that that um, they decided, Jack, Leo and Oliver, the three of them, um, that they would be far better off to form an association themselves just for wheelchair 
users. At 8pm on the evening of November 10th, 1960, ten of us gathered around a table in the pillar room of the Matter Hospital in Dublin. A little after 9pm, when everyone had said their piece, Father Leo called for formal proposals. I proposed, and Oliver Murphy seconded, that an organisation be formed to help Irish people who were confined to wheelchairs. I was appointed first secretary of this new organisation and I recorded the minutes of the meeting in a little red memo book. To start our fund, a subscription of ten shillings each was put into the kitty in the centre of the table and so ended the first meeting of the Irish Wheelchair Association. We were real pioneers. We hadn't a clue what we were doing and what was going to happen. We just kept going. See, when we started forth, one of the things was very big at that time. The people were very self-conscious. We ran, in Dublin, they ran weekly socials, and they organised every week transport, no drivers, entertainment, and they'd have a whale of a time. Once a week they'd go, and they'd be dancing and music and all that. But they were designed to get people to come out. While Jack was volunteering for the Irish Wheelchair Association, he became ill and was admitted to the newly formed National Rehabilitation Hospital in Dunleary. While recovering there, he met a young English occupational therapist called Rosemary Burgess. And uh, there was this guy called Jimmy Garrigan. Quite frequently, Jimmy would say to me, oh, Good morning, Miss Burgess. Have you met Jack Carrigan yet? And I'd say, No, I haven't. And um, he'd be going on and on about this man, Jack Carrigan. And after about four or five days, a referral card arrived down for occupational therapy for Jack Kerrigan. So I went up to the ward at the usual time and um, went over to him and said, um, good morning. I can't actually put it into words. I think one of the things about Jack were his eyes. He had um, greeny-brown eyes, very unusual colour, but very, very... And, and, and eyes that were very... Very vocal, if you like. I mean, you could see when he was um, teasing you. You know, the glimmer, the humorous, um, courteous, lovely courteous manner. One of the things that Jack always did, he had time for everybody. He was just a very unique person. Rosemary and Jack began to discreetly see each other outside of hospital hours. Their feelings quickly grew, but they were both cautious. He'd always maintained he'd never get married. I had always maintained I'd never get married. Seeing what had happened in my family, no way. And Jack said he would never, he'd decided a long time ago he would not marry because he couldn't ask any girl to marry him. He couldn't earn his living. He was on disability. He didn't, I was, in those days was, I don't know how little it was, but it wasn't much or anything. So I think what happened is that two people who were absolutely convinced that they would never get married relaxed and got to meet each other initially as a, to be a platonic relationship, which developed into a, a huge warmth for each other, if you like. I don't know whether I was the wiser one or not, but I decided I really had to sort myself out and see, did I want to stay with a man? Did I actually, was I changing my mind about getting married? So without saying anything to Jack, I decided I'd try and go and work somewhere else for a while. Rosemary took a post at a hospital in Heidelberg, Germany. In her absence, Jack got a job working with other wheelchair users and in the evenings he focused on training for the next Paralympic Games. He wrote to Rosemary each week. 
2 Railway Terrace, Drogheda, 14th of June 1964. Dearest Rosemary, here I am again tonight, with pen in hand and heart full. I'm very tired and sleepy, so forgive me if this letter is rather a mess. I stayed late this evening at the Jacob's Pool, as I have done several nights this week. I have a graph made out and pinned on the back of the workshop door. A light pencil line shows the progress that must be achieved to qualify for the Tokyo Games. After every swim, I put a dot in the appropriate square, and so far not only am I holding my own against the pencil line, I'm beating it all the way. However, that's not what I wanted to talk to you about at all. I got your letter this morning, thanking me for the roses, and I felt an awful clot as in my haste to post my last letter. I hadn't thanked you for the cigars. Thank you, darling, they're lovely. I've only smoked one as yet. I had also forgotten to answer your very important question, and that is to say that it would be my eventual ambition, when I make the money, to build our own house in the country with electricity, piped water, or perhaps its own well, two or three acres of land, a dog, a horse, and maybe even children. In talking of the future, I know I use your name without restraint, but, sweetheart, don't think I expect you to marry me, though, of course, I want you to marry me very much indeed. And I may as well tell you the rest. Father Leo is leaving for his post in New Zealand on the 5th of October, and I hope he'll marry us before he leaves. I know it's crazy, but think about it for a week before you say anything. My eyes are closing, so I'll turn over and go to sleep thinking of you. I dreamed last night that you were coming down the steps out of the plane at Dublin Airport, and I was waiting and kissed you and hugged you lightly. Just a public preliminary. Maybe I'll do the same tonight. Good night, darling. Jack. Rosemary returned from Germany, and despite the disapproval of many in society, she accepted Jack's proposal. To describe Rosemary, well, I suppose Rosemary was one of the most competent people you could ever wish to meet, and uh, Jack was so lucky for to meet Rosemary, and, uh, you know, that they formed a, a relationship that lasted for all those years. I had been told by long and happily married people that from the surmounting of the greatest problems together comes the greatest happiness. I believed this and looked forward to our future not so much as a bed of roses but as an uphill climb in which the view from each stage would make the effort of getting there well worthwhile. With Rosemary by his side, Jack began to achieve the hopes and dreams he had set out in his letter. He went on to represent Ireland at two further Paralympic Games and he and Rosemary also became parents. In 1970 and 72 we adopted our two boys, Jonathan and Paul. Both of us became part-time employees, enabling us to rear our lads with the very minimum use of babysitters. Uh, Jack would have been a fantastic father. He'd help look after his sister's young children. I can remember him playing with, with, with Jonathan. Jack would be in bed, maybe, and I'd give him uh, Jonathan to look after. 
I'd be out in the kitchen and I'd hear this little child chuckling away and Jack would be lying there and he'd have him up here like this and bring him down, and, you know. Jack was so strong he could try, push up his child up in the air and the child would and bring him back down again and play with him. In 1976, Jack, Rosemary and their two small boys travelled to Australia to visit Paddy. While there, Jack got news that his old friend Leo, who was now living in New Zealand, was unwell. Um, Jack had to go, was visiting Australia. I think he had a brother in Australia and he was over visiting his brother and he decided he would like to come to see Lone. So it was a wonderful, a wonderful um, uh, thrill for both of them. I, I wasn't there for the actual meeting, but it must have been a very um, warm meeting and very uh, hard on both of them. There was Jack. He he had, um, I suppose, Lone had had got him out of the bed. Sorry, I'm for coming. And um, Lone was there in the bed himself, and he was dying. So um, it was very hard. Now, Jack had to leave him before he died. And that was very hard, too, you know, um, because they knew they would never see each other again, you know. Leo's death caused Jack to reflect on his own life. And soon after he and Rosemary returned to Dublin, Jack made a decision. And I can remember going home one day and him saying that he'd been to the bank and... uh, talked to the manager and he said yes he says we could sell this house and I forget what he suggested and he said and I said sell the house he said yeah I want to go back up to um to the northwest and he really he really did want to go and this was going to be a total change and we were going to you know but anyways I agreed I retired in 1978, and in 1979 we moved to Drumahair in County Leitrim, where we embarked on our next project, to build a bungalow, designed by me, and to run a ten-acre small holding. I am now part househusband, as the jargon goes, and part smallholder. In many ways, we were very lucky to get this site, because it was what Jack actually has specified a few years uh, yeah, a few years beforehand to a local auctioneer. You know, Jack always had this hankering to come back up here. And he said, well, listen, if you can find a place on a hill with a river nearby and a good view. So we are here, we have a river going through our land and we have a lovely view of the mountains. Jack loved being back in the northwest and he gradually added geese, ponies and goats to the small holding. He encouraged his old friend Oliver to visit. Oliver was by now married to Joan. When they moved to Leitrim to myself and Oliver went on a visit and um, Rosemary was working and he was looking after the, the, two, the two lads. And oh God, he was so terrific. And at that time they just had a mobile home because they were building the house. But they were a very happy couple. Oh, very. Really, he, he taught the world of her and she of him. One of the things I remember now too about one of the days we were up with Jack... And the way he could milk the goats. And what it was, he had the field and he had a little hut that he could go into. And the goat could come in out of the field and come up on a platform in front of where Jack was sitting. He'd milk the goat, bucket, take the bucket out, and let the goat out the other side back into the field. And the next goat would come in. And Jack had milked the goat. That's true. And he made all that himself. Jack immersed himself in the rural way of life becoming passionately involved in campaigns to protect his beloved Leitrim landscape. 
I, I, I can see the day, I don't know the date or anything, OK. But I can remember Jack was busy, I don't know what he was doing, perhaps washing up, and I must have been doing something here beside him. And we were just discussing, we started to talk about um, somebody must have died or something. And um, I think I was the first person to say, well, listen, if I die before you, I hope you, I hope you meet somebody. And he said the same. Somehow that he said he didn't want to be buried. I said, what do you mean you don't want to be buried? He said, I don't want ever to be put in the ground. I can't bear the thought of the worms eating me. Which I think is actually very funny. I said, well, what do you want? He said, no, I want to be cremated. So I said, right, and where do you want the ashes to go then? And he said, up on Benbow. And that's Benbow over there. Jack continued to work tirelessly for the Irish Wheelchair Association and his door was always open to young people who were coming to terms with life in a wheelchair. He wrote his memoirs, thinking his story might give them hope. When I look back over the past 40 years, it's hard to say exactly when my rehabilitation ended and normal living took over. The most important achievements of my life have been ordinary things, like having a family, contributing to society, earning the respect of my fellow man. I would not have considered these things possible in my early days of hospitalisation, and nor did anyone else. Oh dear. Be warm up on the, the tea things cleared away. Rosemary, Jonathan, Callum and Isabel prepared to drive up the mountains towards Benbow, to the place where Jack's ashes were scattered after his death in 1994, at the age of 65. I phoned him, oh, just the day prior to his passing away. He was in a lot of pain and had decided not to continue on dialysis. He said, I can't complain. I've loved and enjoyed a very full and happy life, thanks to Rosemary, Jonathan, Paul, and a lot of very good supportive friends. There's a view of lakes outside Drummerham. Day, it's magical. You can see Sligo Hills, the Donegal Hills, you can see everywhere. So that's one of the reasons why he would have liked it so much. This is really a magic place. Yeats talked about his Celtic twilight where you are halfway between reality and the sort of other world. And that's really part of all that's here. We would have got out and got over and not, well, I'm not saying this is 100% the actual spot, but you see this piece of grass here, it's ver- this, a little promontory there. We would have been there. And I can see Jonathan writing Jack with the ashes in my mind's eye. Hmm. There's the wee town of Malahalta down there, you see. Can you not see why he would have loved it?
The Boy from the Northwest, the Jack Kerrigan story, was written and researched by Joanna Marsden. Jack's memoirs were read by Michael Murphy, and original music was by Andrew Sinnott. The programme was produced by Susan Dennehy and was supported by a grant from the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with a television licence fee. To listen back to this or any other News Talk documentary, go to newstalk.com forward slash documentary on Newstalk.